I'm really excited about working our way through the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, whichever you prefer. Um, we're going to be with Jesus in the School of Prayer for, uh, for, for several weeks. And just to let you know, what we're going to do is we're going to be kind of bouncing between two passages. Because the Lord's Prayer is found twice in Scripture. It's in Luke chapter 11. It's also in Matthew chapter 6. And Matthew 6 has a bit of a fuller version. That's the one that most of us know. Luke has some abbreviations. We'll talk about this more as we get into the prayer. Uh, that alone tells us that Jesus didn't give us this prayer just to always do rote prayer. When he says pray like this, it doesn't mean pray exactly, though you can do that. But obviously Luke did some variation on purpose. And so should we in our prayers. We should take the structure of what God has given us in the Lord's Prayer and apply it to, to our own day and age, and we'll talk more about that. So I want to read the first part of Luke, the introduction, and uh, we'll give a couple points, and then we're going to jump into the first point. We're going to talk about the person of God, our Father in heaven, in a few minutes. Listen to what Luke says in chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. So as we jump into the Lord's Prayer, let's consider a couple of things that are really important if we're going to learn how to pray as God wants us to pray. And let me give you three introductory thoughts on the Lord's Prayer. We could do this as a separate sermon, but I wanted to just kind of give them all today. And here's the first one. First of all, we are in a healthy place when we sense the urgency to pray. We're in a healthy place when we sense the urgency to pray. And this is the disciples in the passage, but let me give you a little bit of a ramp kind of moving in this direction. Have you ever gone through something in life where you just feel woefully deficient? You just feel like you're behind the curve. That could be school, that could be work, that could be a sport. You just feel like you're behind the curve you don't know everything, and you're not quite where you should be. I remember the first seminar I took in theology, probably about, oh, I don't even know how many years ago now, 12 years ago, and I was really excited. I signed up for the program, and, you know, you get some theological preparation for the seminars, but I sat down in this one particular seminar, and I learned all the books that we're going to read. Like the typical seminar, you got to read like, oh, a lot, hundreds of pages per week. I'm sure many of you have been through these in your own field. And I order my books, and I open the very first book in the reading, some 200 pages that are due the next day, and I open the book only to discover that 40% of that book is in Latin. And I'm not very good with Latin. I'm good with other things, right? I'm proficient in NFL and MLB and things like that. Latin was something I hadn't put a lot of work into to that point. And immediately I had this, like my heart just felt, I'm like, is this what it's going to be like? I felt so behind the curve. And then I sit in the class there and I'm talking to the guy next to me. He'd become my commuting buddy for about two years. And not only is he proficient in Latin, oh, he's fluent in German and, you know, he's fluent in French and Hebrew and Greek and, you know, you just feel like you're so behind the curve. I imagine that computer programmers might feel this way. You go through school, you get your first job and you're told to work on this or this project, and you just feel like, I didn't get that in school. Where, where am I going to learn this? And you're up all night trying to figure this out. Or maybe you move to a certain travel team, and you find out the level of experience there is way more than you thought. 
And people are just running circles around you. We've all had those kinds of experiences in life. And the reason I bring that up is because that's exactly where the disciples are. We could translate this, Lord, can you teach us now to pray as John taught his disciples? The disciples are listening to the disciples of John pray. And they're realizing there's something about their prayers that might be missing in their own prayer life. And it's common for a rabbi to instruct on prayer. And up to this point, they just kind of feel deficient. And if that can happen to the disciples, that can happen to us. If you feel deficient in prayer, that's a healthy place to be. Because that's what puts the disciples in a posture to learn. It's important for us. It feels discouraging. And sometimes things may feel hopeless. But when we feel deficient in anything in life, it is at that moment that we have that opportunity to really grow in a particular discipline, whatever it may be. And so I'll put it this way. When it comes to prayer, if you feel deficient, maybe you even feel a little embarrassed. Like, I'm a church leader. I've been doing this for a long time. And I still don't feel like my prayer life is what it should be. You are in a great place because Jesus is really not concerned with what you've done up to this point. He's very concerned with what we do from this point forward. And so that deficiency puts us in a posture to learn. It puts us in the school of prayer, kind of like the disciples, where we feel inadequate for the job and they look to Jesus to instruct them on something. And so you and I this morning, I wonder when I say something like, we're going to talk about prayer for five weeks. I wonder how many of us go, oh, no, not that, (laughs) you know? Like prayer is really hard and my prayer life really suffers. It's been flat. It's been almost non-existent. But again, Jesus is less concerned about where you've been. He's very concerned about where you and I are going to go. So today we leave those things behind. We look towards the Lord just like the disciples. And we take the same posture of humility that the disciples take. We're going to look at Jesus and say, Lord, will you teach us now to pray? And I pray that's your heart. The second thing we might want to say is we are in a healthy place when we schedule prayer into our day. Now, this is a really important point. Notice what Jesus says. When you pray, pray like this. And what Jesus is assuming in this passage is that his disciples actually have a prayer time. There is a certain rhythm to their prayer. There's a certain schedule to their prayer. And by the way, what runs up to this, you know this passage. He says, when you pray, enter into the closet. You know, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't stand on the street corners. What's assumed in all of those verses is the disciples actually have some rhythm to their prayer life. That they're in the habit of scheduling prayer into their day. Now there is a sense in which all of life is prayer, right? The Apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing. Now, how do we pray without ceasing? No doubt Paul's talking about an attitude of prayer. He's saying that prayer is the oxygen to the Spirit. That in everything we do, we want to be in communion with God. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be regular in our prayer. We want to have it often. So there is a sense in which all of life is prayer. Pray without ceasing. You know what's funny is when you read church history on this verse how the church historically has interpreted pray without ceasing. We all agree that we have to find ways to be in communion with God all throughout the day, right? But how this is applied is almost comical, you know. Uh, I was reading Cotton Mather on this, who's an old Puritan, you know, and he says something like this. He says, when I go throughout my day, I will see a tall man on the street. 
and I will pray for him. May he have high attainments in God, you know. Or there's a man carrying a big load, and I say, Lord, help him to lay his burdens down at your feet. May they not be too heavy for him to carry. Or he'll see somebody going about their day very busy. You know, may they not neglect the most important thing. And so he would kind of build it. It's kind of, kind of trite. I get that. But it's a way to build it into your day. There's a, uh, a place where John Newton, remember John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace? Well, each month he would meet with a group of pastors and they would discuss one verse. And for a month, they were going to discuss, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? How do you have an attitude of prayer? And while they were discussing, a a maid or a cleaner came into the room, and they paused, and Newton looked at the maid and said, how do you pray without ceasing? And the maid said something like, you know, when I get up and I put my clothes on, I say, Lord, thank you for clothing me in your righteousness. And when I wash my hands, I say, Lord, wash my heart as white as snow. You know, there's a lot of ways people have applied this. But we all basically mean the same thing, right? We're not telling us everybody to follow those patterns. But we are told to, to pray without ceasing. There's a sense there. Uh, by the way, the best illustration I've ever heard of this is by the Anglican uh, pastor J.I. Packer. I love what Packer says about this kind of verse. He says that when he sits down to eat a meal, you have meat and potatoes and vegetables, and then you have salt over here. He said, I don't take a bite of the potatoes and the meat and then take the salt shaker and, you know, put it to my mouth. He said, the salt seasons everything. And he said, that's what it means to pray without ceasing. That prayer would season all of life. It's not just a separate discipline. I say all that to say, there is a sense in which we pray without ceasing. There is also a sense in which God wants us to build into our lives the rhythm of prayer. To have regular prayer. Daniel scheduled prayer into his day. Three times on his knees he would pray in a particular direction. The apostles had a rhythm to prayer. It wasn't just random and sporadic, though I don't doubt they did a lot of that. There was a rhythm to their prayer life. The Old Testament law built the rhythm of prayer into the life of God's people. When we assume that spontaneous prayer is more spiritual than scheduled prayer, that's a problem. I love when people pray spontaneously. I love when you're waiting for the bus and all of a sudden God impresses upon you to pray for something in your day or somebody else's day. That's a wonderful thing. But when we assume that's the most spiritual form of prayer versus something like a rhythm to our prayer lives, we are probably outside the scope of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Spontaneous prayer is wonderful. So isn't scheduling prayer into your day. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And so I have to ask the question, when do you pray? What's your rhythm? What are you scheduling into your life? At what point during the day do you know this is when I'm going to God in prayer? And frankly, this is how I'm going to pray when I get there. I got a plan for my prayer life and I got a plan for my day. When you pray, pray like this. We are in a healthy place. We find ourselves scheduling prayer into our lives. Number three, we are in a healthy place when we look to Jesus to teach us to pray. And this is where the disciples say, Jesus teaches us to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Now, this is what I love. When you pray, he assumes they are already praying. What Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't pick apart the disciples' prayer. 
He doesn't look at him and say, oh, you, he does this in other places, but not here. He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith, you guys don't even know how to pray. Why have you even been trying to pray? He doesn't belittle the prayers they're already making. In fact, he says, good for you guys. Now, when you pray, pray a little bit more like this. And that's why theologians call this a, a reshaping prayer. Because Jesus comes along his people, his disciples. He's coming along you as we go through the Lord's Prayer in me. And he's not belittling our prayer lives by any means. What Jesus is doing is reshaping our prayer lives. Like a voice instructor comes and reshapes how the singer might hit the notes. The singer already knows how to sing. They've been singing in the shower for years. Or think about pruning a tree. The tree has been growing for years. There's so much right with that tree. But then the arborist comes and prunes that tree a little bit so it grows in a certain direction. And that's what Jesus wants to do with us through the Lord's Prayer. He wants to trim some places. He wants it to grow in a certain direction. He doesn't belittle the disciples. He's not belittling you. He's saying, when you pray, I want to reshape your prayer life like this. And that's what we're going to ask God to do, starting in just about, oh, 30 seconds with the first point, that the Lord would reshape our prayer lives to bring him more glory and more honor as we pray to him. All right, so let me give you an outline of how we're going to proceed, and we're just going to touch on the first thing today. Uh, You can break the Lord's Prayer down a number of different ways. This is what I have found helpful. Number one, the person of God, our Father, which art in heaven. The promises of God, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us to pray the promises of God there. Number three, the provision of God, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Number four, the the pardon and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And finally, the protection of God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Five points, not just because I have five fingers, by the way, but because it breaks down nicely like that. Today, we're going to take up this first point, the person of God. And here's how I want to approach it. Outline I've modified from uh, something I heard, uh, read in a book a long time ago. All right. Three points, let me give them to you, and then we'll touch on them here on the person of God. Number one, you do not just have to pray alone. Our, I want you to emphasize our, we're praying together. Number two, God does not leave you alone. We get to this in a few minutes. And number three, you do not have to struggle alone. You are getting help from a Father who is in heaven. He's all-powerful. So let's touch on those three points as we think about the person of God. First of all, you do not just pray alone. Think about the first word, our. And he could have said my father. I would have expected my father. Because when I think about what is the most intimate spiritual discipline I do and you do, it's probably prayer. Reading your Bible is incredibly intimate. And singing is incredibly intimate. But prayer is something very intimate. Because you are pouring your heart out to God. You are saying things in prayer that you generally don't say to anybody else. If there's one place that I would say the Lord's going to come and tell us this is private, this is just between you and God, I would say it would probably be our prayer lives, but that's the one God opens up. We find in this passage right away that yes, it's good to pray by ourselves, but we do not just pray alone. It is our Father, and that's an expression of community. And what Jesus is saying is that just as it takes a string of Christmas lights to light up the tree, 
When we come together as God's people and we pray together, we're not just that one little bulb. We are a panoply of bulbs on the tree that are lighting it up. As the tree is glorified by the lights, so is God glorified by the community, community of his people when we pray together. I would say just as important, the word our implies equal access to God, doesn't it? That he is not just my father, he is not just your father, he is our father. Now this is a really important point, and here's why. When it comes to certain things, I will call it our, even if it's not mine. I could see myself doing that. Let me give you an example. Let's say you and I were at Target. And I got out of the car and I, I left my wallet in the car. And about four steps away from the door, I might, I might look at you and say, I left the wallet in our car. Now, it's not my car, it's your car. But I could see myself doing that with a car. But I never do that with relationships. You know what I never do? If it's your son or daughter, I never say things like, hey, how is our son doing? You know? That's just weird, you know? I don't look at you and say, How's our husband? How's our wife? You know, we will use the word our with like objects and things like you never do that in a relationship. I don't look at you and say, how's our uncle? If it's your uncle and not mine, I always say, how's your uncle? When it comes to relationships, we only use the word our when it's ours. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father. He is my father, he is your father, and guess what? He's not more my father than your father. He's our father, it's a community. He is truly our father. And that's what Galatians is all about. Neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free, all is one in Christ. He's not more the father of the free, or more the father of the Jew, or more the father of the male. They are one in Christ and so are we. He is not more the father of Peter, the leader of the apostles, than Cornelius, the Gentile who just put his faith in Jesus and spoke in tongues. He's both of their father equally. This is what bothered Jonah, right? Jonah believed, yeah, I'm sure God could work in the life of the Ninevites, but he's always going to belong to us more than anybody else. And when Jonah realizes, oh, he's our father, he's not just mine, he's as much that pagan's father down there as he is mine when they repent that really bothered Jonah he is our father in Christianity no one Christian has greater access to God than the other we believe in a priesthood of the believer we all have our high priest Jesus you say what about the pastor what about the deacons what about the missionary equal access to God our father he does not leave us to just pray alone number two I am not left alone. Father. Father, of course, stresses a personal relationship. Because he, listen, he could have said, our God who is in heaven. That'd be completely appropriate. The Almighty who is in heaven. I could see Jesus saying that. But he specifically plucks this beautiful word, our Father who is in heaven. By the way, you, you probably know this. The word Jesus would have spoken here is the word Abba. Right, Abba. And how, did, remember in Romans where Paul uses the word Abba? He says, when you pray, the Spirit helps you say Abba, Father. Even in a Greek-speaking church, they were going to use that Aramaic word, Father. That's how important that concept was to the early church. 
that they were using the foreign word to describe God, even in a Greek-speaking church. This concept of father is huge to the early church. There have been scholars that tell us that up to this point, they cannot find a single Jewish prayer where God is addressed in a personal way like this, our father. Jesus, for the first time, breaks some kind of precedent here when he says, when you pray, pray our father. And boy, we value this idea. I want to give you a few thoughts about what it means to be, have God as our father. And as I click through these points, I want to upfront recognize that we're not talking about earthly fathers here. We realize that all earthly fathers are flawed. True of me, true of every father in this room. The only perfect father is one that doesn't yet have a child. (laughs) That's the perfect child. I have a friend that, oh, this is funny. I had a friend that, uh, he's a big blogger. He tens of thousands of hits on his stuff each week, things like that. And he wrote a bunch of blogs on parenting when his child was like two years old. And he says, I'm getting all this out right now before I lose all my credibility in a few years. <laughs> you know, There's no perfect father here. And some of us, of course, are flawed more than others. But we're going to talk about the ideal father. God is our father. And let me give you four things that a father does. He does for you and he does for me. And Jesus wants us to think about these as we address God. First of all, we can go to God because he welcomes us. And that's the first thing that might come to mind. A father welcomes his children. A a son or a daughter has access to their father in a very special way. Sometimes we don't feel very welcome. Like Zacchaeus, we're hiding up in a tree. Or like the woman that touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Remember her? She didn't feel very welcome, but she really wanted to be around Jesus. Or maybe we're like uh, Luke 18, where there's a man praying, but he's far away from the temple, doesn't feel very welcome in the temple area. Sometimes we stand before God with insecurity and trepidation. We don't feel very welcome, but the very first words of this prayer invite us into his presence. He is our father. And so we find ourselves like Zacchaeus, surprised that he wants to dine with us. Or a little starstruck, maybe, like the woman when Jesus calls her out and says, who touched me? God welcomes us into his presence. All right, let me talk football just for a moment. I know, we're not all, I promise this will be easy to follow. You know, in the last Super Bowl, it was the Bucks versus the Chiefs, and the Chiefs are favored by three points. Uh, of course, the, all eyes are on Tom Brady. Love him or hate him, all eyes are on the quarterback of Tampa Bay, Tom Brady. And that's because Tom Brady has six Super Bowl rings. And if he wins, he's going to get his seventh. Look, I didn't grow up a Tom Brady fan, but once you cross 40 years old, I root for you. And that's just my rule of thumb, you know, because my back hurts, my leg. I know how hard it is to do at 40, and I all of a sudden admire you. So even I'm pulling for this guy to get his seventh ring. Of course, the Bucks are going to win 31 to 9. And when the time runs out on the clock, thousands, listen to me, thousands of people are going to rush down on the field And every one of them wants to be next to who? Tom Brady. Love him or hate him. They want to touch him. They want an autograph. Dozens and dozens of reporters are going to put a microphone up in his face. Tom Brady is the goat. Everybody wants to be near the goat. Something played out on that field that is absolutely remarkable and irrelevant to this point. You know what it is? With thousands and thousands of people surrounding the goat, Tom Brady, 
a 13-year-old boy walk right through every one of them. And he did not give Brady a high five. He did not ask for an autograph. He jumped up on his lap. And Brady picked him up and embraced him in his arms. And all the attention of Tom Brady at this moment is on this kid wearing his jersey. Why does this boy have special access to Tom Brady? I bet you guessed it already. He goes by the name Jack Brady. And that's his son. The son has special access to the father. You and I have an access to God as our father. That all the clamoring for attention, there he receives us into his arms and into his presence. I know this for sure. If you are a high, high level executive, you are very careful to give out your number because people will just text you like crazy. But I bet your five-year-old son has it. (laughs) I bet even your three-year-old daughter can send you a text anytime during the day if they want to talk to you. Because children have access to their father. Number two, we should go to God because God provides for us. He's a provider. Now, we're going to get to this one in a little bit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not by accident that that line is included in the Lord's Prayer because a father provides for his family. There's a great book out on the Lord's Prayer by Terry Johnson. It's called When Grace Comes Alive. And he talks about his family that comes from Pennsylvania. And uh, he talks about his grandfather. His grandfather worked 12 hours a day in the old coal mines. Uh, my family, a couple summers ago, we went and visited one of, these, one of these mines, and it goes down into the earth. It's an amazing experience. You can feel, just like that, 20 degrees just drop like that. And boy, if there's not a light down there, it is pitch black. They used to walk around with candles and things like that. These things would cave in from all sides, very dangerous. 50 years this man worked in a coal mine. Do you realize he only had one day a week off Sundays? Now think about this. In the wintertime, this guy would go into a coal mine in the morning, 5 o'clock, maybe 6 o'clock, and when he came out, it would be dark again. He would go months without even seeing the sun, except maybe once a week. That's an amazing sacrifice that somebody's making. And Terry Johnson said, I once looked at him and said, Pop, why did you do that? And he said it was a reaction. He said, I had to get bread on the table. The father is providing. Mothers, of course, provide. We provide for our children. Jesus delights in providing. We're not there yet, but we are going to pray, give us this day our daily. You know what we're not going to pray? Sell us this day our daily bread. We're going to realize that God delights. That's why he said, fear not, little flock. God delights to give you the kingdom. Number four, God protects. We go to God because he protects. He protects us. Psalm 91 verse 1, I say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he will deliver you from the snare of the fire, the deadly pestilence. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right, but it will not come near you. God protects I think about Moses and how his mother and father protected him up until the point where they couldn't. And then what did they do? They still wouldn't hand him over. They put him into a basket and gave him a chance to survive. You know what Moses' father and mother were doing? Doing everything they can to protect their children. 
I don't think you realize this, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm out of line here, if, if you, you know, but you don't realize this until you become a parent yourself. The extent that someone will go through to protect their children, mother or father. I was downtown um, several years ago in a, south, a town in South Carolina. It was getting late at night, you know, and there was, a, there was I'm just going to be frank with you, it's kind of a geeky looking couple, you know, <laughs> wonderful, I'm sure, you know, full of the Holy Spirit, but a little bit geeky. And they had, they had like, I don't know, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids with them. It was their children. And there was another group of kids that might have been 18 to 20 years old, and they're starting to really roughhouse over here. And I could tell they're kind of looking at these kids like they're going to pick on them or something like that. So you've got like a possible 18, 20-year-old that's about to pick on a 13-year-old, and the father and mother are standing right there. Now, they don't know something I know. You are about to unleash a wrath from which you will be afraid and you will run. <laughs> Because that couple may look unassuming right now, but lay one hand on that 13-year-old and the paper tiger is about to come alive. Every parent knows that because you know the extent to which you will go to protect your children. And I'll tell you when this really came home to me. I was watching Jaws the other week. You like Jaws? I'm going to make a confession. I am terrified of sharks. And my family knows this. It's not the kind of terror where I don't want to see him. It's the kind of terror where I actually do. That's the worst part. I was watching Jaws, and there's this scene where, you know, one of the kids is on a boat. I already got this tingling up my spine right now. And, and who is it, Brody, Chief Brody, or maybe someone else, jumps in the water and swims towards the kid and saves the kid. And I'm thinking to myself about my own kids, and I'm thinking, you need, you need a kidney? I'm your guy, you know? You need someone to take your bullet? That's me. Please don't make me ever jump in the water <laughs> to, save, to save you from my worst nightmare. That to me is like, I'll do it, but please, let's not even go to the beach together, you know? It's terrifying. I have to believe that these kinds of things have gone through people's minds. The extent to which a mother or a father will protect their children. God is our great protector. We go to him because he protects us. But the last thing, it might be the most important, he's our forgiver. A father forgives you. A father doesn't hold grudges, not the ideal father. Father speaks of loyalty to his children, faithfulness. And what you have when God says our father, this is actually an echo from the Old Testament. Because Israel is called the son. But Israel is called the son specifically in the redemptive passages, like the Exodus Today, out of Egypt, have I called my son? In other words, he is the prodigal God. When the prodigal son comes home, he forgives us like that. He receives us. He embraces us. We belong to him not because we're good children. You know why we belong to him? He's a good father. Watchman Nee is an old Chinese evangelist. Did a lot of ministry in China uh, back in uh, the 20, early 20th century, mid-20th century, and Someone that he, in one of his churches, was new to the faith. And this new person said, every time I pray, I just, I, I don't feel great connections to God. I feel like I'm going to lose my salvation. You know, all the things that people might think. And Watchman Nee there, he said, you see my dog over there? He said, my dog is an angel. He always goes to the bathroom outside. And he eats what's in front of him. He never complains. <laughs> When I come home, he's the first one to greet me at the door. That dog is a pure delight to me. And then he looked over at his newborn son. And he said, see that baby over there? He's a mess. (laughs) 
I got to change the diapers. He complains when I give him certain food. He throws his food all around. He's a total mess. He says, but which, which one is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog, but my child. A father forgives. A mother forgives. And as we come before God, we have that wonderful, glorious forgiveness in Christ. I want to give you one last thought here. Let's finish this last point, but we will do it quickly. Number one, we don't, we don't pray just alone, just pray alone. Number two, God doesn't leave us alone. But number three, we don't struggle alone. Our Father, which art in heaven. So let's think of it this way. When you think about the word father, the word father implies intimacy and love. So I can't think of a better description to use for God than father. He's our father. He's our parent. In other words, we have that kind of love from God. In heaven communicates something a little different. It communicates power in majesty, in glory. I love how Laura put these two songs together. i got to believe this is going through her mind right now in the order of service where we sang, this is my father's world. And she said that talks about God's transcendence and power. But then we sang about the love of God, how deep the father's love for us. Those two ideas are right here in the passage. When we say our father, what are we saying? He's so close. He loves us so much. When we say in heaven, he is transcendent. He is mighty. He is powerful. It is precisely because God is in heaven that he can help you. And it's precisely because he's your father that he wants to help you. He is both willing and able. And that brings us to just one final point that I think has been rattling through my mind, and I want it to rattle through yours a little bit. RBC, there's two things that we are not. Number one, we are not deist. God is all-powerful and all-loving. You know what the deist says? The deist says he's all-powerful, but he's not very loving. That's why in the deist Bible, they'll literally cut out passages on God becoming man. And they cut out all the passages, Thomas Jefferson type stuff. They would take the passages out that communicated that God had an interest in the world. A deist is that religion that believes God is like the watchmaker. He winds it up throws it out there and lets it go and has nothing to do with it and the world is just going on and on. The deist says God is powerful. He's in heaven, but he's certainly not our father. Secular humanists, they fall off the other edge. They say God is loving. Of course he's loving. God loves everybody. God would never be upset at anybody. But he's certainly not all powerful. And so in humanist philosophy, God is kind of like a friend that can hold your hand during a trial, but he certainly can't do anything about it. We are not deists. We are not humanists. We are Christians. We hold both of these up together. He is our Father. He is willing to aid us and He loves us. He is all powerful. He is able to save them to the uttermost. At RBC, we are going to learn to pray God centered prayers. That's how Jesus wants us to pray. And so we begin with the person of God, starting out with the person of God, theocentric, not man centered. Our Father, who is in heaven.